This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Well, Well, Well here on Joy and the Community Radio Network. I'm Cal Hawk, and joining me now in the studio is Professor, Dr. Professor, well, kind of all of the above, <laughs> if you will, uh, Dr. Jenny Hoy. Thanks for joining us on Well, Well, Well. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Cal. Well, pleasure. It's great to have you back because I know you were on the show in previous years. Um, first time here at the studios here in yeah. the Victoria Pride Center. But let's go back way back here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start in medicine? So I decided I was going to be a pediatrician and cure leukemia when uh, my brother died of leukemia age 12 and I was age 14. Wow. So that was that was my goal. I was going to cure leukemia, but I didn't really understand how difficult it was to get into medicine. So I just sort of scraped in by the seat of my pants into the course at Monash. Um and then uh you know, I I I excelled in the clinical years of medicine rather than in the basic science years of medicine. Um, and really flourished towards the end of the course. Um, and at that point, I realised I was not going to cure leukaemia. And I also realised that paediatrics probably wasn't for me either. I liked the kids. It was the parents of the sick kids that was really um, a very difficult interaction because of their concerns and potentially over concerns um, at times. So then I went to the Alfred Hospital and was an intern resident, registrar, and it came time to choose a specialty. And uh, I, I really liked infectious diseases because it was a bit like detective work and everybody got better. That's what I really liked about infectious diseases. So I went and I trained in infectious diseases. And then in my last year of training, HIV came on the scene. And it, it was no longer everybody got better. Right. And do you remember, you know, is there a particular moment or a particular patient where you kind of, HIV and AIDS, you know, we were really talking about AIDS then, came on your radar. Really, it really hit you. Actually, it wasn't in Melbourne. Oh. Uh, at the, um, in my second year of training, I'd organised to do my training over there, which is what we were all encouraged to do in those days. And I had decided that there was no one trained in Australia in infections in the immunocompromised host. And there was a hospital in Houston, Texas, the MD Anderson Hospital, which was the cancer hospital for uh, Texas. And so I organised to go there to get that training. And in the meantime, HIV and AIDS appeared. Um, 
it was more advanced in the US than it was in Australia. So it was in Texas, in Houston. And the first patient that really struck me was, um, a, you know, a lovely black man um, with CMV retinitis. And he was blind. And the nursing staff, you have to remember in those days, we didn't have a lot of information about <clears throat> how HIV was transmitted. So there was a lot of fear as well as the stigma and discrimination, but fear amongst healthcare workers about, you know, if I touch this person, will I get HIV? And <clears throat> so I went in to the room to see this patient who could smell his lunch but didn't know where his lunch was because he was blind. And I took the tray and I took it over to his bed and I cut up his meal and I fed him and we chatted for the longest time and it was the first time I really appreciated what it was like in those early, early days. So this is the early 80s? This was 1984. Right, right. That's a pretty profound moment. And that's, yeah, uh, yeah, obvious. I think I, yeah. I just listening to that right now, I'm, I, you know, very, very touched and moved by that as well. When do you come back to Australia? So um, I was a bit delayed coming back to Australia. I was going to come back after two years, but... Um, Love intervened. Ah, yes, okay. <laughs> and I met my husband and um, he and I actually uh, used to argue with each other um, because he was the gastroenterology fellow and I was the infectious diseases fellow and we used to argue about who could see the patient first because my wardrobe was before your wardrobe. So I need – so we had this combative relationship initially and then – it turned into a great friendship and then into love. And, and he never expected he was going to leave the United States, but the United States government decided that I had trained long enough in infectious diseases and it was time for me to return to Australia. And the fact that I was married to an American made no difference. So we came back to Australia and um, he had a tough time for a while while his qualifications were not recognised, etc. But, you know, now would not swap anything in his life it was a good move for both of us so it came back in 1988 okay and so I was so, there four years and at that point Australia is really properly being hit we by were it. we were absolutely in the thick of it um ward four at the Alfred at, at Fairfield I'm sorry was um full and full of people, um, beautiful people, beautiful men in the main, but there were some women, but mostly men, um, who were very unwell, very sick and dying. And, and we had very little to offer them in those days. We were learning alongside them. Um, and we had no treatment for HIV um, when I came back. We could manage the opportunistic infections, the pneumonias. There were some infections we couldn't manage. Um, 
But yeah, it was really tough. And I came back not as a necessarily a clinician in those days. My job was to run the clinical research, to run all the trials. And um, so I had a very close relationship with what was then the National Centre in HIV Epidemiology and Clinical Research and, and David Cooper. And David Cooper recognised that there was this large group of people with um, HIV and AIDS in Melbourne who would love the opportunity to be part of the clinical studies that were going on. And there was so much um, voluntary, you know, um, uh, involvement in those days that, you know, people gave of themselves much more than that they took. You know, they wanted... They wanted cures. They wanted treatment so that their friends didn't have to suffer. It, it was an entirely different time to today. Um, yeah. You've mentioned Fairfield, and for a lot of people that have lived in Victoria a long time, they, they're maybe familiar with Fairfield. But, of course, Fairfield Hospital isn't around anymore. For younger listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Fairfield Hospital? So Fairfield Hospital was the uh, Queen's Memorial Infectious Diseases Hospital, and it had a very long and proud history of managing infections. Like there was the polio ward, and and there were patients in there in the iron lung that that we would manage and support. Um, we managed rabies. We managed all sorts of infections. There were two children's wards um, at Fairfield Hospital with um, the whole gamut of childhood infections that are now vaccine preventable and, you know, the doctors today hardly see them. Um, and then, of course, the adult infections as well. And, and there was um, a group of very dedicated senior clinicians and, and infectious diseases had just become a specialty in its own right when um, I went to Fairfield. So it, it was a young specialty and, and there were younger people there. And that's where Anne Mitch and I um, got together and, and we trained at the same time. Um, and she was an amazing woman at Fairfield. Um, and when Fairfield closed, because that was, I think, the mid to late 90s. 1996. I could almost give you the exact day, but I think it was May 1996. <laughs> How did you feel about Fairfield closing? At the time we fought the closure, we thought that there would be no way that we could replicate the kind of care and research and treatment um, that that we did at Fairfield in another hospital. Um, so at the time, dreadful. We were all so sad. But I do have to say that for me, probably... It was only within a couple of years that I realised that actually access to the better imaging, having easy access to different specialties of medicine, easy access to surgeons, intensive care, etc., um, was probably better for the patient group. Um, and and today, where you know HIV is probably not the infection itself is not 
the major concern for most people. It's all the comorbidities, etc. That's where we need all of our colleagues to help us manage all those things. So well, as painful as it was in mid-1996 to about 1998 to 99, I think it was better to close for people with HIV. Yeah. I'm going to be continuing the conversation shortly with Dr. Jenny Hoy as we talk about her career in HIV and AIDS research and medicine. You're listening to Well, Well, Well here on Joy in the Community Radio Network. Sexual health, mental health, and the overall well-being of our LGBTIQ communities. You're listening to Well, Well, Well. I'm Cal Hawk, and I'm continuing the conversation with Dr. Jenny Hoy about her career in HIV medicine and research. And actually, that's what I want to ask you about next. You've been involved in incredible amount of HIV research in your career. Is there any particular research you're proud to have been involved with? I th- I, I think the probably the largest project that I've been involved with that I'm most proud of is the START study. And the START study, I was involved with the SMART study, which preceded the START study. And the SMART study was about if we only treat people when their CD4s are low, would that eliminate some of the toxicity from the antiretroviral drugs? Because in the days that we did the SMART study, there were a lot of people stopping treatment because of lipodystrophy and and some of the terrible side effects that we saw from the drugs. And what we learned from the SMART study is it's not smart to stop your antiretrovirals because there was an increase in heart attacks and cancers and and comorbidities in those that stopped treatment compared to those that continued their treatment, which wasn't what we'd set out to achieve. We thought it was going to be the other way around. So then the START study was, okay, if everybody needs to be on treatment, when should they be starting that treatment? And at the time, the the most guidelines said you started treatment around 350 CD4 cells. So the START study said, okay, we'll take people with CD4 cell counts above 500 and we'll randomise them. And what that means is by the flip of a coin or by a magical computer, you will be told whether you start treatment or whether you not don't start treatment until your CD4 cell count has reached 350 and then you start treatment to prevent you from getting into trouble from AIDS illnesses. Now for people who aren't familiar, what is a CD4 count? So a CD4 cell count is a measure of your immune function and um, the, it's the CD4 cell that the HIV virus actually infects and causes a reduction in number through other processes as well as killing um, some of the CD4 cells. And the CD4 cell is the conductor of the immune orchestra. It tells the immune system when to turn itself on because there's a foreign bacteria or virus, etc. But it also has an important role turning the immune system, the immune reaction off when that foreign invader has left the body. Because if you have a continual immune 
reaction, you'll get into more trouble again, which is what we're finding today with comorbidities. So that's what immune so this function. Study, yeah, so yeah. we were so telling people before. So this study is about when should we be starting treatment? And just like the SMART study, the START study was stopped early because it was found that those that started treatment at above 500 CD4 cells had much less illnesses, comorbidities, AIDS illnesses, etc., than those that deferred starting treatment until their CD4s were lower. So I was the Australian principal investigator on that study and I used to attend phone calls in the middle of the night for it because it was a, a global study. But also in that study was a sub-study that Andrew Carr from New South Wales and I were the, were the generators of this sub-study. It was all about bones. What happens to your bones? Because in actual fact, starting antiretroviral treatment hurts your bones. You get a reduction in the bone strength and that can lead to early fractures. And it was the only thing that was found to be an adverse effect of starting treatment early was the effect on bones. But today we've got better treatments, so the effect on bones is much, much less than what it was in those days when the study was done. So we now know that we start antiretroviral treatment as soon as possible after diagnosis to limit the effect on the immune system and to prevent all of these opportunistic infections and to prevent as much in the way as we can of comorbidities. It's a pretty big game changer in how we treat. It was. And, and you know, at the time, as the study was continuing, there was also the information that came became available about treatment as prevention. And so there was this, this conflict between prevention of HIV transmission to people without HIV by treating those with HIV, but were we causing more harm to those with HIV by treating earlier? And there was a conflict in the community about that. Um, there was a conflict at a guidelines committee level in Australia. So, yes, it was a, a, a tough time, um, but I'm, I'm sort of glad that we held out and we actually got the answer that actually treatment's good for everyone. And this isn't that long ago. How, long, how far back are we talking? So uh, the START study probably started around 2005, finished around... I can't remember now, <laughs> maybe 2008 to 2012, around those yeah. times. But then yeah. the finding, like you said, it, it finished a little bit early and then that conversation is less than 10 years old. That Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And we treat everyone. Yeah. yeah. Another project I want to ask you about that you were involved in is, uh, again, a few years ago, but I know that you did a video with uh, Thorn Harbor Health, then the Victorian AIDS Council called, Could It Be HIV? Um, that I think talked a little bit about um, 
a woman who was diagnosed with HIV and actually, you know, when it had progressed quite a bit, you talked about CD4 count before and how that's an indicator of, you know, the lower your CD4 count go, I guess, more immunocompromised you are. But there were people, I guess, that are atypical, I guess, of what we would consider at risk of HIV. And they were being diagnosed quite late for that reason. Could you talk a little bit about that video? And and that was, I guess, talking about building the capacity of doctors to think about HIV a little bit mm. earlier on and why that was necessary. What was mm. happening? So there were lots of missed opportunities to diagnose HIV earlier. And and you're right, Cal, because if, if we diagnose earlier and treat earlier, the damage to the immune system is much more reversible. For some people whose immune system is damaged so much, they never get the opportunity to return to their pre-HIV levels of immune function. Um, so this this video and um, there's been a few other um, uh, projects that we've done with doctors that are not infectious diseases doctors, but they we call them HIV indicator conditions and these are conditions that we know that occur more frequently in people with HIV but they're not opportunistic infections they're not the typical advanced immune deficiency complications so there's one of them is um, something called immune thrombocytopenia ITP um, and what that means is the immune system destroys your own platelets and platelets are very important for clotting. So when you scratch yourself and and you're bleeding through the skin, it's your platelets that come together to form a barrier to stop the bleeding. So if you have very low platelets, you're at risk of bleeding a lot. So this particular condition is usually seen by a haematologist, not an infectious diseases doctor, not a sexual health physician. And so there's a whole list of these conditions where we say, think of HIV if you have this condition. Um, and so it, it's now there's a list of indicated conditions. We remind the GPs that, you know, this is important we, we can see people who've had interactions with health services multiple times that have had the missed opportunity of that earlier diagnosis. For example, shingles. Shingles occurs commonly in the community, but it's also more common in people with HIV. So if you have shingles, you should be tested for HIV. You know, if you have tuberculosis, you should be tested for HIV. And all of these conditions, we recommend it. Thorn Harbor Health this year celebrated 40 years and uh, I guess to some extent four, four decades in the response to HIV here in Australia. World AIDS Day 2023 is around the corner, four decades on. How, what do you think about how far we've come? Oh, my goodness, we've come so far. <laughs> we have come so far where... Um, you know, a diagnosis 40 years ago, um, there was a high chance of dying within 12 months. Young people diagnosed today, it's like, huh, I've got high blood pressure, just take a pill. You know, it'll be fine that there's not, there's not the adversity experienced by um, those 
from the younger days. So we've come so far with treatment, with prevention. I mean, the prevention space at the moment is just amazing with with all of their um, you know ideas on how to to eliminate those final infections that are occurring um, and the novel, innovative ways of thinking about that. Um, so we really, we've come a long way. I, I had hoped that before I retired, we would have a vaccine. Uh, we won't have a vaccine before I retire. And uh, the other thing we won't have is the cure. So they're the two final pieces that we need to achieve, I think, in the next decade, hopefully. And maybe we can learn from COVID for the vaccine um, and the advances that COVID vaccines made very quickly. Um, cure, I, um, really, it might take a bit longer, but yeah, hopefully. Yeah, invasive. Yeah. Well, that's a great final reflection. Look, Dr. Jenny Hoy, thank you so much for joining us on Well, Well, Well. And thank you for sharing a bit of your personal story. And thank you for your legacy of work, because it is remarkable. Um, so much of it have, has informed, I know, the team at Thorn Harbor Health's work, uh, and well and truly beyond that. So thank you so much for joining us on Well, yeah. Well, Well. Thanks, Cal. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbor Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. For more LGBTIQ plus health and well-being and much more, check out Thorn Harbor on social media at Thorn Harbor or via the website thornharbor.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.